developing your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Who is the mysterious woman who bewitches our hero? Has she enchanted him before? M.P. Scheele, today on the Classic Tales Podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales Podcast. Thank you for listening. The Classic Tales Podcast is listener-supported. The monthly donation option really helps us to create a support flow we can count on. If you can step up with $5 a month, That really helps us out. Go to ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com and become a monthly supporter. You'll get a monthly thank you code toward any digital download. It's a great deal and a great feeling. Thank you so much. You can also purchase t-shirts and stuff at our merchandise store. And check out the hybrid audiobook. The audiobook that's embedded in a printed book. Invented and patented by yours truly. Links can be found in the episode's details. And for those of you with the Classic Tales app, check out your special features for more meditations of Marcus Aurelius. Just enough to wet your whistle. Now, during the month of March, we continue to explore the masters of the ghost story. Matthew Phipps Scheel, known as M.P. Scheel, who lived from 1865 to 1947, was a prolific British writer of West Indian descent. His work was lauded by both H.G. Wells and H.P. Lovecraft as essential to the development of weird fiction. Shield's dark imagination continues to influence writers of supernatural fiction to this day. I hope you enjoy today's story of a courtesan who returns to torment her tormentor. And now, Zelucha by M. P. Scheel. Three days ago. By heaven, it seems an age. But I am shaken. My reason is debauched. A while since, I fell into a momentary coma, precisely resembling an attack of petit mal. Tombs and worms and epitaphs. That is my dream. At my age, with my physique, to walk staggery like a man stricken. But all that will pass. I must collect myself. My reason is debauched. Three days ago? It seems an age. I sat on the floor before an old sister full of letters. I lighted upon a packet of cosmos, why, I had forgotten them. They are turning seer. Truly I can no more call myself a young man. I sat reading, listlessly, wrapped back by memory. To muse <laughs> is to be lost. Of that evil habit I must wring the neck, or look to perish. 
Once more I threaded the mazy sphere harmony of the minuet. Reeled in the waltz, long pomps of candelabra, the noonday of the bacchanal about me. Cosmo was the very Tsar and Maharaja of the Sybarites, the Priap of the Detraque. In every unexpected alcove of the Roman villa was a couch, raised high, with necessary footstool, flanked and canopied with mirrors of clarified gold. Consumption fastened upon him. Reclining at last at table, he could, till warmed, scarce lift the wine. His eyes were like two fat glow-worms, coiled together. They seemed haloed with vaporous emanations of phosphorus. Desperate, one could see, was the secret struggle with the devourer. But to the end the princely smile persisted calm. To the end, to the last day. He continued among that comic crew, unchallenged, courageous of all the rites. I will not say of Paphos, but of Chemos and Balpeor, warmed, he did not refuse the revel, the dance, the darkened chamber. It was utterly black, rayless, approached by a secret passage, in shape circular, the air hot haunted always by odors of balms, delium, hints of dulcimer and flute, and radiated round with a hundred thick-strewn ottomans of Morocco. Here, Lucy Hill stabbed to the heart Cacofogo, mistaking the scar of his back for the scar of Soriac. In a bath of malachite, the Princess Egla, waking late one morning, found Cosmo, lying stiffly dead, the water covering him wholly. But in God's name, Mary May, so he wrote, think of the Lucha dead, the Lucha. Can a moonbeam then perish of supparations? Can the rainbow be eaten by worms? <laughs> Laugh with me, my friend, Elderangara d'enfer. She will introduce the pas de tarantule into Tophet. <laughs> Zelucha. The feminine Zelucha, recalling the splendid harlots of history. Weep with me. Manat rarameas lacrima pergenias. Expert as Thargelia. Cultured as Aspasia. Purple as Semiramis. She comprehended the human tabernacle, my friend, its secret springs and tempers more intimately than any savant of Salamanca who breathes. Terare. But Zelucha is not dead. Vitality is not mortal. You cannot wrap flame in a shroud. Zelucha? Where then is she? Translated, perhaps, wrapped to a constellation, like the daughter of Leda. She journeyed to Hindustan, accompanied by the train and the pertinence of a begum, threatening descent upon the emperor of Tartary. I spoke of the desolation of the West. <laughs> 
She kissed me and promised return. Mentioned you too, Merrimay. Her conqueror. Merrimay, destroyer of woman. A breath from her conservatory rioted among the ambery whiffs of her forelocks, sending it singly a wave over that thulite tint, you know. Costumed capape, she had, my friend, the dainty little completeness of a daisy, mirrored bright in the eye of the browsing ox. A simile of Milton had for years, she said, inflamed the lust of her eye, the barren plains of Sericana, where Chineses drive with sails and wind their caney wagons light. I, and the Sabines, she assured me, wrongly considered flame the whole of being, the other half of things being Aristotle's quintessential light. In the Orania Hierarchia, and the Faust book, you meet a completeness, burning seraph, cherub full of eyes. Zeluha combined them. She would reconquer the Orient for Dionysius, and return. I heard of her blazing at Delhi, drawn in a chariot by lions. Then this rumour, probably false, indeed it comes from a source somewhat turgid, like Odin, Arthur, and the rest. Zeluha will reappear. Soon, subsequently, Cosmo lay down his balneum of malachite and slept, having drawn over him the water as a coverlet. I, in England, heard little of Zeluha. First that she was alive, then dead, then alighted at old Tadmor in the wilderness, Palmyra now. Nor did I greatly care, Zeluha having long since turned to apples of Sodom in my mouth, till I sat at the sister of letters and re-read Cosmo. She had for some years passed from my active memories. The habit is now confirmed in me of spending the greater part of the day in sleep, while by night I wander far and wide through the city, under the sedative influence of a tincture which has become necessary to my life. Such an existence of shadow is not without charm, nor, I think, could many minds be steadily subjected to its conditions without elevation, deepened awe. To travel alone with the primordial cannot but be solemn. The moon is of the hue of the glow-worm, the night of the sepulchre. Nooks, bore not less than Atos than Hupuos, and the bitter tears of Isis redundulate to a flood. At three, if a cab rolls by, the sound has the augustness of thunder. Once, at two, near a corner, I came upon a priest, seated, dead, leering, his legs bent. One arm supported on a knee, pointed with rigid accusing forefinger obliquely upward. By exact observation I found that he indicated Betelgeuse, the star A, which shoulders the wet sword of Orion. He was hideously swollen, having perished of dropsy. Thus, in all supremes is a grotesquerie, and one of the sons of night is <laughs> Buffo. 
in a London square deserted, I should imagine even in the day, I was aware of the metallic, silvery, clinking approach of little shoes. It was three in a heavy morning of winter, a day after my rediscovery of Cosmo. I had stood by the railing, regarding the clouds sail, as under the sea-legged pilotage of a moon wrapped in cloaks of inclemency. Turning, I saw a little lady, very gloriously dressed. She had walked straight to me. Her head was bare and crisped with the amber stream which rolled lax to a globe, kneaded thick with jewels at her nape. In the redundance of her décolleté development, she resembled Parvati, mound-hipped love-goddess of the luscious fancy of the Brahmin. She addressed to me the question, "'What are you doing there, darling?' Her loveliness stirred me. "'And night is bon camarade.' I replied, "'Sunning myself by means of the moon.' "'All that is borrowed luster,' she returned. "'You've got it from old Drummond's flowers of Sion.' Looking back, I cannot remember that this reply astonished me, though it should, of course, have done so. I said, On my soul, no. But you? You might guess whence I come. You are dazzling. You come from Paz. Oh, farther than that, my son. Say a subscription ball in Soho. Yes, and alone, in the cold, on foot. Why, I am old and a philosopher. I can pick you out riding Andromeda yonder from the hidden ram. They are in error, monsieur, who suppose an atmosphere on the broad side of the moon. I have reason to believe that on Mars dwells a race whose lids are transparent like glass, so that the eyes are visible during sleep, and every varying dream moves, imaged forth to the beholder, in tiny panorama on the limpid iris. You cannot imagine me a mere fee. To be escorted is to admit yourself a woman, and that is improper in nowhere. Young Eos drives an equipage a quatre, but Artemis walks alone. Get out of my borrowed light in the name of Diogenes. I am going home. Near Piccadilly? But a cab? No cabs for me, thank you. The distance is a mere nothing. Come. We walked forward. My companion at once put an interval between us, quoting from the Spanish curate that the open is an enemy to love. The Talmudists, she twice insisted, rightly held the hand the sacredest part of the person, and at that point also contact was for the moment interdict. Her walk was extremely rapid. I followed. Not a cat was anywhere visible. We reached at length the door of a mansion in St. James's. There was no light. It seemed tenantless. The windows all uncurtained, pasted across some of them, with the words, To Let. My companion, however, flitted up the steps, and beckoning, passed inward. I, following, slammed the door, and was in darkness. I heard her ascend, and presently a region of glimmer above revealed a stairway of marble, curving broadly up. 
On the floor where I stood was no carpet, nor furniture. The dust was very thick. I had begun to mount when, to my surprise, she stood by my side, returned, and whispered, To the very top, darling. She soared nimbly up, anticipating me. Higher, I could no longer doubt that the house was empty but for us. All was a vacuum full of dust and echoes. But at the top, light streamed from a door, and I entered a good-sized oval saloon at about the center of the house. I was completely dazzled by the sudden resplendence of the apartment. In the midst was a spread table, square, opulent with gold plate, fruit dishes, three ponderous chandeliers of electric light above, and I noticed also, what was very bizarre, one little candlestick of common tin, containing an old, soiled curve of tallow on the table. The impression of the whole chamber was one of gorgeousness, not less than a Syrian. An ivory couch at the far end was made sun-like by a headpiece of chalcedony, forming a sea for the sport of emerald ichthyotori, copper hangings, panelled with mirrors, in aspirated crystal, corresponded with the dome of flame and copper. Yet this latter, I now remember, produced upon my glance an impression of actual grime. My companion reclined on a small sigma couch, raised high to the table level in the Semitic manner, visible to her saffron slippers of satin. She pointed me a seat opposite. The incongruity of its presence in the middle of this arrogance of pomp so tickled me that no power could have kept me from a smile. It was a grimy chair, mean, all wood, nor was I long in discovering one leg somewhat shorter than its fellows. She indicated wine in a black glass bottle and a tumbler, but herself made no pretense of drinking or eating. She lay on hip and elbow, petite, resplendent, and looked gravely upward. I, however, drank. You are tired, I said. One sees that. It is precious little that you see, she returned, dreamy, hardly glancing. How? Your mood has changed, then. You are morose. You never, I think, saw a Norse passage-grave? And abrupt. Never? A passage grave? No. It is worth a journey. They are circular or oblong chambers of stone, covered by great earth mounds, with a passage of slabs connecting them with the outer air. All round the chamber the dead sit, with head resting upon the bent knees, and consult together in silence. Drink wine with me and be less Tartarian. You certainly seem to be a fool, she replied with perfect sardonic iciness. Is it not then highly romantic? They belong, you know, to the Neolithic age. As the teeth fall one by one from the lipless mouths, they are caught by the lap. When the lap thins, they roll to the floor of stone. Thereafter, every tooth that drops all round the chamber sharply breaks the silence. <laughs> yes, it is like a century-slow, 
circularly successive dripping of slime in some cavern of the far subterrane. <laughs> this wine seems heady. They express themselves in a dialect largely dental. The ape, on the other hand, in a language wholly guttural. A town clock told four. Our talk was holed with silences and heavy-paced. The wine's yeasty exhalation reached my brain. I saw her through mist, dilating large, uncertain, shrinking again to dainty compactness. But amorousness had died within me. Do you know, she asked, what has been discovered in one of the Danish Kirkenmuddings by a little boy? It was ghastly. The skeleton of a huge fish with human... You are most unhappy. Be silent. You are full of care. I think you a great fool. You are racked with misery. You are a child. You have not even an instinct of the meaning of the word. How? Oh, am I not a man? I, too, miserable, careful. You are not really anything, unless you can create. Create what? Matter? That is foppish. Matter cannot be created nor destroyed. Truly, then, you must be a creature of unusually weak intellect. I see that now. Matter does not exist, then. There is no such thing, really. It is an appearance, a spectrum. Every writer not imbecile, from Plato to Fichte, has voluntary or involuntarily proved that for good. To create it is to produce an impression of its reality upon the senses of others. To destroy it is to wipe a wet rag across a scribbled slate. Perhaps I do not care, since no one can do it. No one? <laughs> you are mere embryo. Who then? Anyone whose power of will is equivalent to the gravitating force of a star of the first magnitude. <laughs> By heaven you choose to be facetious. Are there then wills of such equivalence? There have been three the founders of religions. There was a fourth, a cobbler of Herculaneum, whose mere volition induced the cataclysm of Vesuvius in 79, in direct opposition to the gravity of Sirius. There are more fames than you have ever sung, you know. The greater number of disembodied spirits, too, I feel certain. By heaven, I cannot but think you full of sorrow. Poor White, come drink with me. The wine is thick and boon. Is it not Cetian? It makes you sway and swell before me, I swear, like a purple cloud of evening. But you are mere clayey ponderance. I did not know that. You are no companion. Your little interest revolves round the lowest centres. Come, forget your agonies. What, think you? is the portion of the buried body first sought by the worm. The eyes. <laughs> the eyes! You are hideously wrong. You are so utterly at sea. My God! She had bent forward with such rage of contradiction as to approach me closely. A loose gown of amber silk, wide-sleeved, had replaced her ball attire though at what opportunity I could not guess. Wondering, I noticed it, as she now placed her palms far forth upon the table. A sudden wafture, as of spice and orange flowers, 
mingled with the abhorrent faint odor of mortality over-ready for the tomb greeted my sense. A chill crept upon my flesh. You are so hopelessly at fault. For God's sake, you are so miserably deluded. Not the eyes at all. Then in heaven's name, what? Five told from a clock. The uvula, the soft drop of mucous flesh, you know, suspended from the palate above the glottis. They eat through the face-cloth and cheek, or crawl by the lips through a broken tooth, filling the mouth. They make straight for it. It is the deliciae of the vault. At her horror of interest I grew sick, at her odour and her words. Some unspeakable sense of insignificance, of debility, held me dumb. You say I am full of sorrows. You say I am racked with woe, that I gnash with anguish. Well, you are a mere child in intellect. You use words without realization of meaning, like those minds in which Leibniz calls symbolical consciousness. But suppose it were so. It is so. You know nothing. I see you twist and grind. Your eyes are very pale. I thought they were hazel. They are of the faint bluishness of phosphorus shimmerings seen in darkness. And that proves nothing. But the white of the sclerotic is dyed to yellow. And you look inward. Why do you look so palely inward, so woe-worn upon your soul? Why can you speak of nothing but the sepulchre? and its rottenness. Your eyes seem to me wan with centuries of vigil, with mysteries and millenniums of pain. Pain? Hmm. But you know so little of it. You are wind and words of its philosophy and rationale nothing. Who knows? I will give you a hint. It is the subconsciousness in conscious creatures of eternity and of eternal Loss. The least prick of a pin, not peon, and Aesculapius and the powers of heaven and hell can utterly heal. Of an everlasting loss of pristine wholeness, the conscious body is subconscious, and pain is its sigh at the tragedy. So with all pain, greater, the greater the loss. The hugest of losses is, of course, the loss of time. If you lose that, any of it, you plunge at once into the transcendentalisms, the infinitudes of loss. If you lose all of it... But you so wildly exaggerate! <laughs> you rant, I tell you, of commonplaces with the woe... Hell is where a clear, untrammeled spirit is subconscious of lost Time, where it boils and writhes with envy of the living world, hating it forever, and all the sons of life. But curb yourself. Drink, I implore. I implore, for God's sake, but once, to hasten to the snare, that is woe. To drive your ship upon the lighthouse rock, that is Mara. 
to wake and feel it irrevocably true that you went after her and the dead were there and her guests were in the depths of hell and you did not know it though you might have look out upon the houses of the city this dawning day not one i tell you but in it haunts some soul walking up and down the old theatre of its little day goading imagination by a thousand childish tricks vraisemblance elaborately duping itself into the momentary fantasy that it still lives that the chance of life is not forever and forever lost yet writhing all the time with under memories of the wasted summer the lapsed brief light between the two eternal glooms writhing i say and shriek to you writhing merry may you destroying fiend she had sprung tall now she seemed to me between couch and table merry may i screamed my name harlot in your manic mouth by god woman you terrify me to death i too sprang the hairs of my head catching stiff horror from my fancies your name can you imagine me ignorant of your name or anything concerning you merry may why did you not sit yesterday and read of me in a letter of cosmos oh hysteria bursting high in sob and laughter from my arid lips ah <laughs> zeluha my memory grows palsied and grey zeluha pity me my walk is in the very valley of shadow senile and sere observe my hair zeluha its grizzled growth trepidant zeluha clouded i am not the man you knew zeluha in the palaces of cosmo you are zeluha you rave poor worm she cried her face contorted by a species of malicious contempt zeluha died of cholera 10 years ago at antioch i wiped the froth from her lips her nose underwent a green decay before burial so far sunken into the brain was the left eye you are you are zeluha i shrieked voices now of thunder howl it within my consciousness and by the holy god zeluha though you blight me with the breath of the hell you are i shall clasp you living or damned i rushed toward her the word madman hissed as by the tongues of 10000 serpents through the chamber i heard a belch of pestilent corruption puffed poisonous upon the putrid air for a moment to my wildered eyes there seemed to rear itself swelling high to the roof a formless tower of ragged cloud and before my projected arms had closed upon the very emptiness of insanity i was tossed by the operation of some behemoth potency far circling backward to the utmost circumference of the oval where my head colliding i fell shocked into insensibility when the sun was low toward night i lay awake and listlessly observed the grimy roof and the sordid chair and the candlestick of tin and the bottle of which i had drunk the table was small filthy of common deal
uncovered. All bore the appearance of having stood there for years. But for them, the room was void. The vision of luxury thinned to air. Sudden memory flashed upon me. I scrambled to my feet and plunged and tottered, bawling, through the twilight into the street. This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you've enjoyed this unabridged production of Zelucha by M.P. Scheel. If you've enjoyed this book, please become a supporting member of the Classic Tales at classictalesaudiobooks.com. You'll find many ways of supporting us, starting at only $5 a month. Each donation comes with a monthly thank you code for expanding your classic audiobook library. Please become a member today. Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me every week and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper. Music